Good evening. The governor addresses guns and domestic terrorism is the Azov Battalion in Ukraine, a neo-Nazi white supremacist outfit. We talk about a group of indigenous peoples in the Pamir Mountains, the Pamiri people, who say they're facing genocide at the hands of Russian-backed Tajik government. Eric Adams tells New Yorkers not to panic. And what happens to all the houseless kids who have to get to school every day? A study shows many are not making it in. With these and other stories, I'm Paul DiRienzo with the WBAI News for Wednesday, May 18th, 2022. In response to the white supremacist terror attack at the Buffalo supermarket over the weekend, New York Governor Kathy Hochul says the state intends to confront the extremist epidemic head on. Linda Perry reports. After the massacre at a Buffalo supermarket over the weekend, which killed 10 black shoppers and workers and wounded three others, New York Governor Kathy Hochul called on the New York State Legislature to pass a package of bills to close gun loopholes and provide law enforcement with more tools. She's also launching a threat evaluation management program. And this is going to have multidisciplinary teams in our counties across the state and they'll identify, assess, and be prepared to deal with the threats. This coordination is critical. It does not exist now. It does not exist. That these stakeholders need to be communicating and sharing information. So guess what? They can start to connect the dots. And that's what we did after 9-11. And that's what we're going to do now. Hochul also announced the creation of a domestic terrorism unit focusing on monitoring social media. Because there's a feeding frenzy going on in social media that hate just breeds more hate. And think about all the people who saw the live stream of the slaughter, the massacre of innocent people in a grocery store at a top store on Jefferson Avenue in Buffalo, New York. They witnessed this in real time. And individuals are using these platforms and the, the suspect wanted people to see this. He created an opportunity for people to see this and share what he was doing in his manifesto. So they create platforms so they can share their demented ideas with each other in the hopes that this continues to spread, the virus spreads. And they find others who share their worldview, radicalizing more. And that is a direct threat to New Yorkers. Call it what is, but then have a plan to deal with it. So we're going to ensure that we have the best in the nation's cybersecurity teams to monitor the places where radicalization occurs. We're watching you now. We know what you're up to and we'll be coming after you. But that's only part of the problem. They often find each other because there's algorithms that are out there that elevate hateful incendiary speech. Can you believe that? There's algorithms in place that ramp up and share this even more with higher frequency than other messages. So this incendiary content is pushed out to more people. In 2022, that's how radicalization is, is occurring, through the social media echo chamber. And that's why there are 10 Fewer people in Buffalo, New York today. 
The New York governor also called on New York State Attorney General Tish James to look into social media platforms which broadcast the deadly racist attack at the Buffalo supermarket. Social media, she says, which legitimizes replacement theory and favors engagement over public safety. Attorney General James says specifically the investigations will focus on platforms that may have been used to stream, promote, or plan the event. That's included, but not limited, to Twitch, owned by Amazon, 4chan, 8chan, and Discourse. James said the fact that an individual can post detailed plans to commit such an act of hate without consequence and then stream it for the world to see is bone-chilling and unfathomable. As we continue to mourn and honor the lives that were stolen, James says we are taking serious action to investigate these companies for their role in the attack. Linda Perry, WBAI News, New York. Thanks, Linda. In international news, Turkey's president, Tayyip Erdogan, said today that Sweden should not expect Turkey to approve its NATO bid without returning who he termed terrorists. He added Swedish and Finnish delegations shouldn't come to Turkey to convince him to back their membership in the alliance. Finland and Sweden formally applied today to join U.S.-led NATO, a decision spurred by Russia's invasion of Ukraine. The accession process is expected to take only a few weeks, despite Turkey's objections. Biden's national security advisor Jake Sullivan in a briefing said he believed Finland and Sweden at the end of the day will have an effective and efficient accession process. He added that Turkey's concerns can be addressed. This is a historic event, a watershed moment in European security. Two nations with a long tradition of neutrality will be joining the world's most powerful defensive alliance and they will bring with them strong capabilities and a proven track record as security partners. And President Biden will have the opportunity to, to mark just what a historic and watershed moment this is when he meets with them tomorrow. National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan. Ankara says Sweden and Finland harbor people linked to groups it deems terrorists, namely the Kurdistan Workers Party. And nearly 1,000 Ukrainian fighters who have been holed up in the Azvostal steelworks in Mariupol for weeks have left their positions and handed themselves over to Russian forces and pro-Russian separatists. The evacuation marks the likely end of the battle for the southern Ukrainian port city of Mariupol, which lies in ruins after weeks of fighting. Ukraine says negotiations are ongoing to exchange the fighters for Russian prisoners of war, but Russia hasn't confirmed that a swap will take place. The Speaker of Russia's lower house or parliament, Vishalev Volodin, said yesterday that Nazi criminals, referring to these prisoners of war, should not be exchanged. We should do everything to ensure they are put on trial. And the Donetsk separatist leader, Denis Pushlin, suggested that Ukrainians who are found to be neo-Nazi war criminals, his words, should face an international tribunal. At the heart of the conflict in Mariupol was the so-called Azov Battalion, formed as a volunteer paramilitary militia in 2014 to battle pro-Russian forces in the Donbass. The battalion has been accused of torture and war crimes. The author of a recent article in The Nation about the federal government's disinformation board is Lev Golinkin. He says, if that board's job is to make sure Internet platforms don't serve white supremacists, then why is Facebook getting away with allowing the Azov Battalion to use its services? Russia cynically uses Azov. They gleefully talk about them. They make it out as if Ukraine is a is just one big neo-Nazi goose-stepping nation. And uh, as a result, 
best gift that Azov and others can get because then they just accuse anybody who points out the fact that they are neo-Nazis of parroting Kremlin propaganda, of carrying water for Putin. And number two, and really this is actually the most underlying thing, is that these are our neo-Nazis. If any other country had a neo-Nazi battalion accused of war crimes by Amnesty International and the UN, that would be like one of the most salient features that people would know about it. But because they're fighting Russia and because they're with Ukraine, they get a pass. Unfortunately, though, there's a very long, long history in this after World War II. I mean, we took in tens of thousands of Holocaust perpetrators, collaborators. We gratefully took them in and we used them against the Soviet Union. It's geopolitics. I found it difficult to find anybody who can even define what a Nazi really is. Neo-Nazi is a type of white supremacy. Let's just say easier, the white supremacy. These are people who are radicals. These are people who are beyond racist. They're people who would like to use violence to further their vision of defeating the non-white races in order for the white race to survive. They truly actually do see that they're in a battle for their extinction. They truly think they are getting genocide committed against them. That's not just an excuse. They truly see that, which makes them even more dangerous because it gives them a nothing-to-lose type of mentality. It's not just a theoretical thing. Neo-Nazis and white supremacists across the world have banded together to degrees that they've never banded together before. During World War II, it was mainly each country for itself. In fact, the Germans thought that all of their Nazi collaborators, the Germans despised them. They thought that they were just also next thing to subhuman. So all these lackeys, all these Nazi collaborator groups, the Germans despise them. They just use them to do their dirty work. Is it hypocrisy on the part of the Biden administration? And on one hand, it's shocked about 4chan and kids learning to shoot up stores like happened yesterday, the other day, or uh, is there hypocrisy here? Yes. Today, white supremacists see themselves as part of a global fight of the white race. There's no such thing as a lone wolf. There's the global wolf pack. All of these people see themselves as part of this. So a success anywhere for them is a success everywhere. The danger of Azov is that you have Ukraine, which is now a training ground for white supremacists, where people can go and learn hands-on murderous skills and take them back to their countries. It's extremely dangerous and it's extremely hypocritical. If you're calling out 4chan and Tucker Carlson and you're ignoring the world's only neo-Nazi battalion with a track record of war crimes and that has been training American white supremacists, the FBI arrested four American neo-Nazis who spent time with the Azov battalion. You cannot be serious about combating white supremacy if you're just ignoring the Azov Battalion. It's comical to say that. You're saying that you're fighting a fire where the biggest building in your town is on fire and you're just ignoring it. It's insane. The people in Azov make this guy in Buffalo and others, it's just one person. Here we have an entire transnational network of war criminals and we're perfectly fine with them. We're not just fine, we're saluting them as heroes. It truly is gaslighting. Every time Tucker Carlson sneezes, it's the second coming of Hitler. Meanwhile, here's a neo-Nazi battalion in Europe who has already proven itself to be a premier hub of white supremacy, and we're completely ignoring it. And everything's fine. Anybody who says anything about it is just carrying water for Russia. Lev Golinkin is author of Meet the Head of Biden's New Disinformation Governing Board in the Nation. 
The Soviet Union, the predecessor nation to Russia, consisted of 15 republics. Several of those republics are in Central Asia, bordering Afghanistan, Iran, and China, among other nations. If you read classic English literature, you may be aware of the book Kim by the English author Rudyard Kipling, a renowned supporter of European superiority and imperialism. It's about the great game, the secret 19th century war at the top of the world that pitted then imperial Russia against the British Empire in India. It occurred in the mountains known as the Pamirs. It's also the home of an indigenous people of the same name. With The area has been the scene of bitter conflict as the majority Tajik government, backed by Russia, has launched incursions to control and, in the words of some Pamir people, bring genocide. In recent news from the region, parents of men killed by Tajikistan forces have called on the international community to step in and urgently protect ethnic groups being targeted by the Tajik regime. In a rare interview, families from the Pamiri ethnic minority have demanded that soldiers who kill their sons be brought to justice and urge the United Nations to prevent a new phase of conflict in Tajikistan. The president of 28 years, Emomali Rahman, is seen by the Pamiri people as wanting control of the autonomous province of Gorno-Badakhshan, the mountainous region where the Pamiri people mostly live. Yesterday, a Pamiri resident of New York City spoke with WBAI about what she says is looming genocide by Russian-backed Tajik forces. Her name is Mary. We were one of the 15 republics of former USSR. The majority in Tajikistan are Tajik people. The minority are Pamirians. It's a mountainous place. We are an ethnic and religious minority. Our religious is Ismaili, Muslim Ismailis. That's why we are different. And that's why maybe they are cracked down on Pamirians right now. Tell me about the Ismail religion. It's a very modern part of Islam. A little bit different, and we have our spiritual leader. His name is Agahan the Fourth. Was there always tension between the Pamir people and the Tajik people, even under the Soviet Union days? Yes, because uh, we are different. We consider ourselves not Tajik. Our religion, our language, our ways of thinking, I don't know. Is there discrimination based on that? Yes, yes, exactly. Historically, what kind of discrimination have Pamir people faced? During the Soviet Union, we, we held the government positions and like this kind of stuff. But right now, we are out of everything. So when the Soviet Union collapsed, then the situation changed? Yes, yes, exactly. There was a civil war at some point. Yeah, in 1992, there was a civil war and there was a genocide against Pamirians. It never stopped until now. It was in 2012, and right now, again, we're at the edge of the war again. Is there anything that usually leads to these periods of repression, anything that happens? or It's a provocation from the Tajik government. They put the heavy military people at the streets of Korok. It's the center of Pamir. They're provoking the young guys, the young unemployed guys. We don't have resources for work and all this stuff. So they're provoking those guys by the heavy armor over there. On the streets? Yes. 
So the young people, especially the angry young people who have no future, who feel they have no future, they respond, and that is a provocation. They are causing the clashes. So recently there were clashes and four people died. 13 were injured. We're at the edge of every day. We're at the edge of this provocation. The police state atmosphere knocking on doors, arresting people, questioning. Yes, they're crackdowning on the young men and uh, other activists because they speak up to the Tajik government. If you criticize the government in public at all? Yes, yes. Recently, the Russia extradited Chushambi Chushambiev, the young activist sportsman from Russia, and they put him in jail. They give him eight to ten years in prison. Russia extradited Amredin as well, young Pamirian activist as well. They are torturing them in the jail. If Tajikistan is independent, how do they reach into Tajikistan and grab people like that? To tell the truth, we are under Russia. So we are following the orders of Russia as well. The idea of an independent Tajikistan is not necessarily accurate? No. Is that difficult to talk about? Yes. Yes. Why is that? We can do better, but maybe we are afraid of Russia or something else, and we are following the orders of Russia. What do you think of what's happening in Ukraine? What are the most... It's a big mess and tragedy. People are dying there. The world should stand up for this mess, and it's wrong. Annexation of the sovereign country, you know. What is going to happen next, and what can we do about it here? People should stand up and speak up, and it's very dangerous to the world, not even for Tajikistan and Ukraine. It's dangerous for the world. People are dying every second. It should be stopped. Mary is an ethnic Pamiri living in New York City. Conflict between Ramon's government and the Pamiri has continued for decades with the minority group suffering discrimination in employment and housing and human rights abuses. During clashes in 2012, 40 civilians were killed. And in national news, last night was primary night in many states across the nation, and the results are mostly in. It was a big night for Donald Trump and supporters who think his reelection fail was a steal by Democrats and foreign agents. The results weren't all rosy for Trump. Candidates he endorsed lost governor's races in Idaho and Nebraska and a House race in North Carolina. In Senate contests in Ohio and Pennsylvania, roughly 70 percent of Republicans voted against his endorsement. In one of the most watched races, the Pennsylvania GOP Senate primary, voting was far from over with Mehmet Oz and Dave McCormick virtually deadlocked. Approximately 105,000 mail-in ballots still needed to be counted. Last night, both candidates addressed their supporters. We're not going to have a result tonight. When all the votes are tallied, I am confident we will win. We are making a ferocious charge. But what is this close? What else would you expect? Everything about this campaign has been tight. Now we have tens of thousands of uh, mail-in ballots that have not been counted that are going to need to be counted beginning tomorrow. And, uh, and so that, uh, unfortunately, we're not going to have resolution tonight. But we can see the path ahead. We can see victory ahead. And it's all because of you. So thank you, Pennsylvania. Get some rest. we got a lot of work to do. 
GOP Pennsylvania primary Senate candidates, Mehmet Oz and Dave McCormick, speaking last night. Oz held a razor-thin advantage over McCormick the day after the primary as the vote count continued, but the margin is currently well within the half percent that triggers an automatic recount mandated by the state's top election official. By law, Pennsylvania Secretary of State must order a recount by 5 p.m. May 26th if the margin stays less than half a percent. You're listening to the news on WBAI New York. I'm Paul DiRienzo. Mayor Eric Adams addressed New York City today, telling residents not to panic as the COVID infection rate continues to grow. Health officials put the city on high COVID alert yesterday after rising case counts and hospitalizations reached a level putting pressure on the health care system. Mayor Adams. They are going to continue to come. It appears as though there's a new norm that is settling in our city, in our countries. Variants are going to come. If every variant that comes, we move into shutdown thoughts, we move in through panicking, we're not going to function as a city. I'm proud of what we are doing and how we are not allowing COVID to outsmart us. We're staying prepared and not panicking. When I look at the hospitalizations and deaths, the numbers are stable. When I look at what our school system is doing, we are really changing the game of using testing so people are staying home. Also, I look at all of these tools that we did not have when we first set the color-coded system. I feel extremely pleased based on my analysis in the morning with my health experts that we are being extremely strategic and we are fighting COVID with not only the tools that we didn't have before, but we're also fighting COVID using the intelligence we need to win in a COVID environment. Mayor Eric Adams, for two months now, there's been a persistent rise in known infections driven almost entirely by Omicron subvariants. In recent days, the city averaged more than 3,500 new daily cases, although those numbers significantly understate the virus's prevalence as many infections are detected by at-home tests, but never counted by health authorities. And New York City advocates for homeless students say the city's education department's initial proposal for spending millions of federal stimulus dollars doesn't go nearly far enough to address what they call abysmal attendance rates for students living in shelters. Earmarked for homeless students, but to the state by the end of the month, advocates have been pushing the city. $24 million has been earmarked, that is, to for homeless students to the state. And advocates have been pushing the city to spend a big chunk on hiring an additional 100 staffers to work in shelters helping families with attendance struggles. The city already committed to hiring 50 such staffers with an earlier pot of federal money. But the initial plans presented to advocates, the DOE didn't commit to hiring the 100 requested shelter staffers, instead proposing a range of other initiatives that advocates say won't actually get to the root of the problem. The project director for Advocates for Children of New York is Jennifer Pringle. She says the administration's current proposal for spending millions in federal funding doesn't address the most fundamental problem. Children in shelter are not getting into school in the first place. That are regularly attending school, your attendance should be 90% or above. You're considered chronically absent if your attendance rate is below 90%. For the month of October, and that's the most recent data that's available, the attendance rate for students in shelter was 78.9% compared to 897 
for permanently housed students. 10.8 percentage point lag between permanently housed students and students in shelter. This pattern disparity has predates the pandemic going back to 2019, the 2020 school year, up until schools closed, the average attendance rate for permanently housed students was 92.2%, whereas for students in shelter was 83.2%, a 9% disparity. So you see that gap actually growing this fall. Well over half of students in shelter were chronically absent from school critical right now is that the city has the opportunity to really ramp up its focus, its services, its supports for students in shelter because it's getting $24 million through the American Rescue Plan and federal education funds specifically for students in temporary housing. And that's why we're calling on the city to hire 100 additional students in temporary housing community coordinators in shelter to work directly with parents, youth, students, to make sure that they're regularly going to school, to proactively reach out to families, find out what's going on, what are the barriers to attendance, make sure those barriers are addressed and the parents are supported so that kids can regularly get to school. Has there been resistance from the mayor? We saw a draft proposal from the Department of Education with funding proposals, millions of dollars um, being invested into data systems. There's no one who has the skill set to effectively use that platform to serve families. What's really needed are staff in shelters who have the skill set, the knowledge, the expertise, and compensation to effectively support families. What percentage or what number of students are homeless in New York City schools? There was roughly 100,000 students identified as homeless. That is the federal definition of homeless and includes those students in temporary doubled up situations. 28,000 were identified as living in shelter. That roughly translated into 9% of enrollment. And the buses, of course, we used to see they would come, we would get the kids out early for their buses. 40% of families are placed in shelter in a different borough from where their kids go to school. So oftentimes families are put in the situation of deciding between a stable education for their kids where they're connected with their same peers and teachers or transferring schools. Research shows that kids who frequently transfer schools have worse educational outcomes. Anything like that? This is a unique opportunity right now that the city has to really make transformative change in the way that services are provided to families and shelter. School-based supports are wonderful and needed, but if kids are not getting to school in the first place, those supports will do nothing for those families. Jennifer Pringle is Project Director for Advocates for Children of New York. Education Department officials claim the one-time federal infusion can't fund salaries indefinitely and that the agency already has 117 other staffers spread across shelters. And that's some of the news for Wednesday, May 18th, 2022. The news is producer Linda Perry, our engineers Reggie Johnson from New York City. I'm Paul DiRienzo. Thanks for listening.